name is Robin, and I'm a volunteer at A Brighter Way. And I'm Adam, the executive director of A Brighter Way. And welcome to Conversations About A Brighter Way, where we talk about what it's like for those individuals who've had experience with the criminal justice system. Call it home, people don't answer, people don't support, they support you when you're there, but when you're gone, they forget about who you was, like you vanished. Family members, friends, mentors, mentees, mental health professionals, and employees all play vital roles aiding formerly incarcerated people transitioning back into society. For me, it's turning off the fix-it mode. Patience is really important, and sometimes that's just sitting with somebody, hearing those things that are painful over and over and over again. The advice I give to any job applicant is to be yourself. I want to get to know you and I want to hire you and whoever you are. And whatever experiences you've had in the past, you might be able to bring a diverse perspective to our business. The tagline at A Brighter Way is re-entry through relationships. And in season two of our podcast, we delve into those relationships which play a pivotal role in the re-entry process. Essentially, what we're looking at when you come out of prison is your support group, people, places, and things. If nothing changes, then nothing changes. So if you go back to those same people, that same environment, and doing those same things, you are going to be getting the same outcomes. finale, it took me a while to write something down. And I didn't know why I was procrastinating because this season felt a lot different than season one. And to sum up this season two, I just felt it was just a little weird to do. So I did write some things down, but I also wanted to really have a conversation with you. So here's what I said about the family. I really enjoyed Claudia and Katie discussion. And I really felt a lot when you Adam coached her to let Q be a man and to let him go a little bit. That was very sweet. And I think she got it. I think she did too. There's a lot of times when we're released, we, we talk about the idea of filling in the blanks. When you're incarcerated, you don't know. So you fill in the blanks to what you think certain things will look like. I think the conversation with Clotia and Katie helped me to realize something I already knew, but I didn't know it to the same degree that that happens for them too. They fill in the blanks. They do their best. They're trying to make up for lost time. And one of the differences is while we're incarcerated, we're focused on it. A lot of times we're really focused on what it's going to look like when we come home. And I think a lot of times our family is focused on trying to get from point A to point B and not looking too closely at those things. So when the moment comes, there's a lot of work for them to do in framing this stuff. Is that a part of what you kind of found interesting in that conversation? Yeah, it seemed like a before and after, like before they were incarcerated, after they were incarcerated, after they were released. It just seems like different blocks that you can pick up and put in your life. And you're like, okay, this is what block I'm in right now. I mean, with Katie, right? I mean, she was going along just fine and then she fell in love with you. Yeah, I told her she's got really good taste in everything but men. (laughs) 
I think the interesting thing that I found too with the two different situations is, and Katie was the one that caught it during the interview, that Katie did the last 11 plus years with me, but she didn't have to start this out. She didn't have to deal with that. Clotia had to deal with her son going to prison and facing the events that led to prison and mm -hmm. feeling a measure of responsibility right. towards it and coming to terms with it. We didn't really anticipate that part of it, but it was kind of, it was nice the way that worked out because we got two completely different sets of circumstances, not only in the relationship themselves, but the duration of the relationship. So yeah, I thought that Claudia's being open to my coaching when I brought him home, because I was the one that went and picked Q up. So I was there with all of them on day one. It was a powerful, it was a powerful day. And it's been a powerful seven months since. So what about, you're the one who said in the episode, let's not romanticize this. Right. And I just want to clarify, I said, Katie had said something about it being desperate, like the 53 page letter. I don't think it was desperate. It's just, it's what you have to use. 53 page letter is powerful. That is a lot of words. Yeah, and I think too, when we say don't romanticize it, that doesn't mean that it isn't romantic. We had a very deep and intimate relationship. We know each other on a level that most couples don't get to know one another. We talked about the fact that had we had met under different circumstances, we'd have had a very different relationship. We'd have met at a different time in our life. We'd have had a very different relationship. We were both very aware, not only, I don't think either one of us was very aware of what we we wanted. Mm -hmm. We were very aware of the things we didn't want right. and the things we wouldn't put up with. But I think that helped a lot because we exposed ourselves and made ourselves vulnerable very early. I give her a lot of credit because it was difficult for me in my own way, but I'm not the one who's writing someone who's incarcerated. I'm not the one taking that risk. I'm not the one. I knew who I was. I knew who I was as a person. So I knew when I was expressing all these things and she wasn't falling in love with me, she was genuinely falling in love with me, which was the first time in my life because I was truly myself. She didn't know that. She didn't know if this was really me or not, or if I was just really putting on good fronts. So when I say don't romanticize it, this isn't the way to do things. It was romantic, but it was also like she said, it was desperate and it was painful. We had conversations on a regular basis where I'd say I would be more worried if this didn't hurt because it's supposed to. We were kept from one another and that was that was painful, but it's been all the sweeter, you know, since I've been home. And I mean, we talked about this, but how families do a bit too. I mean, we just express that <laughs> and you really got that. I mean, they're on the outside and their fence is much bigger than yours, but they're still trapped. It still keeps you from the things that you desire. A lot of us when we're incarcerated forget about that. A friend of mine who's still incarcerated now, who's been incarcerated for over 38 years now, told me, the system is sticking an ice pick in my hand right now. And everybody expects me not to pay attention to the ice pick. And I had the conversation with him saying, I wasn't expecting you not to pay attention to the ice pick. Don't act like I'm the one holding the handle. And I think sometimes that's what happens is, is the ice pick is in your hand when you're in there. So it's very obvious what is happening to you. I told Katie this, and I think this is an important thing for people to understand. 
So it doesn't apply to everybody who's incarcerated because everybody who's incarcerated isn't guilty. So I can't imagine what it's like to be innocent and in prison. That's gotta be a terrible, terrible feeling because I used to tell Katie, I had what I called the comfort of guilt. And I used that kind of in air quotes. But the comfort of guilt is, is that I knew I did something. I robbed a bank. I might have been over punished for it, but I knew I did something. So the comfort of guilt is the fact that I, at least I know it's associated with something. Your loved one does a bit and is punished simply for loving you. Mm -hmm. They've done nothing wrong. They've done nothing criminal that they pay a price to. And I, a lot of times we forget that because the ice picks on our hand. I also realized we handled a lot of emotions in that episode. I mean, with the son and mother and the cousins and then you and Katie. Yeah. That was a lot. And it was a lot of different relationships. So it was a lot of different connection points and different levels of emotion mm -hmm. and a different kind of desperation. Katie talks to a friend of ours named Katie. And they recently said, because the other Katie works in reentry, has her own challenges to contend with. And, and one of the days she said, they're not all like you, which is true, but I believe that they all have the potential to be. And we have to, we have to work on that sooner. The relationships have to become in sooner. We have to be working with families so that they understand not only what's going on with their family member, but so that they understand what's going on with them. One of the interesting things is, is sometimes my grandmother passed away six days before I came home. My grandmother was my ride or die. She was there for everything. And one of the things that was difficult for me to hear, but it helped me to understand kind of the survivor's guilt that family, that family members go through was we had a discussion one day and she had a peace of mind when I went to prison. And the peace of mind she had was she knew where I was, she knew I could survive it. It wasn't like the Dan situation where she didn't know, Katie didn't know whether or not he was gonna be able to survive it. My grandma knew I was gonna be able to survive it. And she knew that other people were safe because other people weren't safe when I was out. I was reckless and, and did things. My wife will love this. I was reckless, but she had a comfort with that. And then one day, I probably had been incarcerated for six years at that point. She came home from bingo and the police were all over her property. And the first thing she thought was Adam escaped. So it shows the kind of terrorism that we put onto our families sometimes and we don't even think about it. And they feel guilty for feeling comfort by the fact that they don't have to deal with that on a daily basis. And we have to own that. When we come out here, there's gonna be some scars and scars contract. They're not gonna be able to just immediately say, yay, you've changed, because they haven't seen it all. They have to see it put into practice. You have to give them some time. You have to give them some grace. You have to give them the things that you either wanted them to give to you or that they did. So for the employers episode, the Pauls, the Pauls, the Pauls, this is a great episode to have in our back pocket, because if anybody in anywhere but in Ipsy is thinking about hiring those with a felony conviction, this would be a wonderful kind of mentor to say, hey, these two organizations embrace that felony conviction. They don't run from it. They embrace it. 
Yeah, and some of them have some long history with this either. So it's not some of this new 2020 plus, yeah, we'll we'll hire you because nobody else will take the job. Paul H. has been doing this for decades and he has some really close relationships with the people he's hired in the past. And he's found out what most people find out. We're just people and maybe not even just people because people who've been through some stuff I tell people I'm probably the least judgmental person that you'll ever meet in your life. Because if I haven't made the mistake, I've been mistake adjacent. (laughs) I've been very close. I've brushed up against every mistake that I haven't made. So I don't judge anybody else. And there's also a loyalty factor because I've had people turn their back on me. When I met Katie, I was, my biggest concern was, is that she would leave after a while because it's, I told her I'm hard to love. And she helped me to realize it wasn't that I was hard to love. It's hard to love somebody in this, in that set of circumstances. So when somebody kind of, you know, sticks by your side and shows some loyalty to you, people who've been incarcerated have the ability to tap into a level of loyalty that most people don't understand and a level of appreciation. And when that comes to an employer, you can find your rock star coming out of prison. Zingerman's is starting to really understand that because they're understanding they've got a community concept. And so if you bring people in who've been through some stuff and are dedicated and feel a part of something, they will help you build an empire. That's the beauty of places who can look past a person's history and look into their potential. So when Paul said that he mentioned stats on how many formerly incarcerated people work for us. And in an instant, my mind went to, I wonder who they are, right? More than half, I think he said. I think more than half. And I mean, that would be, that's already amazing. But my instantly, I'm like, well, which ones? And then I'm like, who the fuck cares? Who cares? Right. Are they with me on this journey with this community that I am employed at? I think that's a part of the messaging too, that the beauty that when he brought that up, neither one of us really knew that. But it's also the beauty that we like to other people. We like to talk about the other people. We like to talk about this group of felons, you know, like we're all from the old Warriors movie and we're wearing, you know, varsity jackets and carrying baseball bats and have our faces all made up. What's the thing that they say come out out and play play. yeah i think that that's what people think but what they don't realize is we're all around you we're sitting in the pew next to you at church we're working next to you on the line in the factory we're providing services to you out in the community we're probably sitting next to you in a pta meeting the fact is that in the state of michigan we have a population of approximately nine million people and two million of which have some form of a criminal record Two out of nine. So any room that you are in that has 10 people in it, if you're not one of those two, it would make sense for you to kind of look to see who those people are. And like you said, ultimately, what does it matter? What are they doing now? How are they contributing to my community now? How are we making things better? If you hold people to their past, I mean, my shirt, what does my shirt say that I'm wearing today? Don't hold someone hostage to their past. Yeah, and I use this because it's it kind of draws the absurdity of what we do with certain things when we hold people to your, their past. There's not enough people in there in the room for me to be able to do this exercise fully. So I'm gonna ask you, did you go to kindergarten? I did. So did I. How ridiculous would it be if I referred to you for the rest of your life 
wife as an ex-kindergartner. <laughs> sounds absurd, doesn't it? It sounds absurd. But the way the system is designed, I will forever be called an ex-offender by some people. When I caught my first case, you might have been in kindergarten. So we're talking similar periods of time. And ultimately, it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything. People say the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. But the past was five minutes ago. It was 10 minutes ago. How far back do you have to go to define somebody? We've all done some stupid things and we shouldn't be defined by the stupidest things we've ever done. Agreed. I learned what it was like to be on the other side of the spectrum where you embrace the felony conviction on the job application, where you become a champion for someone and give someone a chance to be something else, to grow in ways that you never have before. And I thought that was really cool that we got to experience that. I'm glad I work for an organization that believes in that. Yeah, I think that's huge. It's one thing to accept. It's another thing to embrace. Exactly. Acceptance is kind of passive and it's like, okay, well, I'll accept the fact that you made a mistake. And to embrace it is, okay, you've made a mistake. How can we use that to our advantage? There's a big talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in a lot of circles, it's got a very narrow understanding of it. But one of the things that I learned that I found to be most useful in that is inclusion is not assimilation. So you don't bring people into a room and then expect them to act like the previous people that were in the room. It defeats the purpose. If you really want to have diversity, if you really want to include people, then you bring them in with all of their experiences and you embrace those. You don't say a begrudgingly, okay, I'm going to let you into the room because somebody says I have to. You welcome them into the room for their experiences. Welcoming somebody who is, you know, formerly incarcerated not only helps with reentry, helps to make the community safer. It helps with generational change because a lot of mm. these things are generational. Mm -hmm. So if you keep the mother and the father in the household and the person has somebody that's that's giving them good examples, solid advice. And one of the pieces that uh, the, one of the things that they learn is a mistake is not the end of the world. You can bounce back. It doesn't have to be a swinging door. It doesn't have to be, you know, a rotating situation. They learn that, but they only learn that when the community embraces them, gives them the opportunity to use their lived experience to everyone's benefit. And that is something great about Zingerman's is when you make a mistake, it is make sure you learn from it and move forward. And as crazy as people might think they are for their SOPs and stuff, that's what a lot of those SOPs came from was mistakes. Right. And so then you go ahead and you create it so for the next person who comes in they don't have to make the mistakes i think it was uh, eleanor roosevelt who said it i used to think it was my grandpa who said it that said learn from other people's mistakes because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself so zingerman's philosophy and their sops and stuff like that is learning from other people's mistakes and having it in front of you as a handbook i mean to me that's there's a touch of brilliance to that because we don't all have to make the same mistakes. You can, you are welcome to make the mistakes that I have, even after you've heard what I had to say, but it strips a layer of an excuse, you know, for you too, you know, and then you come back and you do like we do with our grandparents and be like, they were right. And I wish I'd have thought about it 40 years ago. But I don't think one of my grandmas, I don't know about one of my grandmas being right, okay? 
<laughs> We've all got somebody in the family who's kind of like that too. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if they were ever right. Did I tell you my, uh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's? So when she couldn't speak, but she would kind of mumble and she would look at me and she would point her finger. And I knew that was a lecture. It was the cutest thing. <laughs> right. Because her face would just be like, brap, 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 brap. Right. I'm like, oh, I'm getting a lecture. Got to listen. Yep. Now if I can just figure out what it was about. Right. I just took it however I meant it. Like, <laughs> She meant it with the best of intentions. I'm, she was trying to get you straight. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. <laughs> And the mentor with Michael Jordan and Laquan Hill. And I just have to mention that Jordan's aura, his light, was just so wonderful. And he was so uncomfortable talking about the stuff that he had done because that wasn't him. He wasn't doing those things just for recognition. No, not even just for recognition. He didn't want to be yeah. recognized for most of them. He did it because it was the right thing to do. He did it because he had the ability to do it. And I think he also also did it because like a lot of us who were incarcerated and realized the damage we did to our communities and families and things like that, we have a very strong pull to not necessarily just make amends, but to build things up and to create instead of destroy. And remember, if you see a larger black man, I think he said 326 6'2", 320. Big boy, yeah, ain't no doubt about it. Yeah, so if you see, I mean, he might be a Jordan. He might not be scary. He might be a Jordan. Yeah, and I love the story about the shoes. And one of the reasons why is because he saw this young, bigger black kid and he wanted him to know that, you know, there's some people that are gonna look at you a certain way and you don't have to act like that. You don't have to play into that stuff. You can be a gentle giant. You can be there. And I, it made me think about this, especially in prison, but not just in prison. A lot of times we talk about, we, we make these dualities that there's just, there's two people in the world. There are wolves and there are sheep, which is a false choice. And somebody really put it really in a way that made a lot of sense to me and made me understand who I was more because I I became a wolf because I didn't want to be a sheep. It wasn't that I wanted to be a wolf. I just didn't want to be a sheep because that false choice was either you're going to be predator or you're going to be prey. And somebody put it really succinctly to me and they said, but there are sheep dogs, which are not victims and they're not predators and often protect those that are defenseless and can't protect themselves. And so when Jordan was, you know, when Jordan talks, that's what I see. I see a sheepdog. I see a sheepdog who wants to protect people. And he's learned how to do so in a way that is constructive and not overly aggressive. He inspired Q to do the watch. Yeah. To help that gentleman with the watch. I thought it was great that Q said to that gentleman, us recently incarcerated, we're not all bad. Yeah. So just know that. Yeah, that's re-entry through relationship right there. It's not just about having, you know, these podcast discussions and things like that. They're all a part of the relationship. That's why it's conversations about a brighter way, because it's about all of us lending our light, our energy, our understanding to make things better. It's not just about what we do. It's not about how we do it. It's not just about the programs. It's about we interact with people 
every day. Every one of those interactions has the potential to do harm or to help the situation. So I've been talking to my guys at a brighter way a lot about this lately because there are a lot of things going on in the community right now with some people that are upset and talking in ways that they shouldn't be. Not people first language, referring to people by, by the crimes they've committed and things like that even though they're 30, 40 years ago. And fair or not, fair or not, sensical or not, we are held to a higher standard than the average individual. And we're also held to a higher standard than the very professionals we're put in these situations. And I'll give you a perfect example. And this is not bashing, this is using an obvious example. If one thing happens within one of our organizations, especially one that's run by somebody who's formerly incarcerated, they're quick to jump on the fact that, well, of course that's what they did. Of course, you know, drugs were involved. Of course, violence was involved. And they're ready to shut the entire program down. You shouldn't mess with them anymore because of this. During the two years of COVID, Drug overdoses to the point of death in the Department of Corrections doubled one year and then doubled again over the next year. Now, mind you, this happens also in the face of Narcan being introduced into prisons. So there's still more people dying even though there's Narcan to save and have reversals in these situations. But nobody's talking about closing the prisons and not having guards anymore. So when I say this, I'm not saying this, this isn't bad mouthing. This is juxtaposing things, putting things side by side so you can see how ridiculous the argument is that one mistake should shut down a program that somehow the formerly incarcerated shouldn't be working with the formerly incarcerated. We need to just have these conversations. It only makes sense that people who have been through similar circumstances can work with one another. We know that when it comes to the military. We know that with people who have been victims of rape and incest. And there's all these different things that we know somebody with similar experience has a rapport that's kind of built in. We need to stop using the formerly incarcerated as a whipping boy for everything else that everybody's mad at. Like I said, I had the comfort of guilt. I think other people have the comfort of the fact that we were guilty of something too and not wanting to let it go because it's easier that way. And I can see because Lawanda in season one, she couldn't be around anybody who was recently incarcerated and she had to get approval for her ride because I think her ride was so that seems strange to me because those are the people that you have been around and you're comfortable with and for you not to be a part of that seems a little traumatic. Yeah, not only that those are the people that you've been around, those are the people that if you're in OS housing, everybody in your house is right. formerly incarcerated. And if you guys work at the same job, I can't ride with you to the job. It's just, it's, it's also inefficient. Right. It also doesn't teach people to be more cooperative and collaborative. It teaches them to be more individualistic. It teaches them not to ask for help. There's just a lot of things that have mixed messages. And it's easy to create those mixed messages when there's not people on the other side of it. When there's convicts and there's felons and there's offenders and things like that, it's really, it's really easy to do that. It's like arranging furniture in a room. I can arrange the furniture any way I want to and don't care what the furniture thinks because I don't think the furniture thinks. 
And unfortunately, that's what happens. And that's part of a relationship too, is relationship of our perception of things and people. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this just happens in one direction. We do it with police, we do it with judges, we do it with prosecutors. We have a tendency to dehumanize them and they become the uniform. It's not just a one-way thing. When I speak about it, I'm speaking about it from my experience. And my experience is also bringing me to the point where I love being in the room with prosecutors, police, judges, because we all need to look at people a little bit differently and realize who's on the other end of the gavel, of the gun, of all these different things that we have a non-human at the end of. Agreed. So our mental health, that was probably the toughest for me. For a mental health episode and speaking about trauma, I wanted to read an excerpt from post-traumatic stress disorder and post-incarceration. So they mention a number and I think the number is worldwide. So I will go ahead and read this. Post-traumatic stress disorder and post-incarceration. Being incarcerated in general is traumatizing. The inhuman treatment, lack of compassion, and suffrage on a daily routine is most difficult to survive. But then you add past trauma coming to surface and living in repeated trauma daily. It is no surprise that each year more than 700,000 people leave prison having undergone a traumatic experience. When emerging from the prison system, many will return to society undiagnosed and untreated. That was just an excerpt. And that's why I thought having the mental health issue was really important you might not be aware that you dealt with trauma and the system that you were in caused that trauma as well. So there is help out there. We have known and we talked to the social worker, the therapist about how to get help as well. You know, we talk about stigmas a lot too, and there's a stigma associated with even acknowledging trauma, especially for men. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist for women, and I think women often come into these situations with even more traumas, but often it's easier for women to acknowledge the fact that they've taken place. For men, it's almost non-existent. We've been, you know, raised to, you hurt something, you, you rub some dirt on it, and you keep it pushing. We don't understand that strength comes in many forms and asking people for help, acknowledging the fact that you went through something. I'm going to say something right now, and I'm going to say it in a way that some people might think it's a little bit crass. And, it, and, and, I'm, and just for everybody's understanding, it could be it could touch, touch on traumas. But I want to, to make this point because there's going to be some people out there who are listening to what I'm saying about mental health and being like, man, I ain't, I ain't never talking to a therapist. I ain't got no trauma. I'm good. And you did some time in prison. You've been in a room the size of a small bathroom with another male telling you to take all your clothes off, telling you to bend and spread it. Tell me how that just made you feel. That's trauma. Your heart rate changes. Your palms might start sweating. You might get pissed off. There's a lot of different things that go on. That's an example of it. It's meant to be dehumanizing and it sticks with you. No place else in the world would that behavior be accepted, let alone taught. So there's no shame in talking to somebody else. We talk about it and we jug at each other and we make jokes and that's how we deal with it. But at some point in time, you need to seriously process it, whether it's with a friend, whether it's with a family member or whether it's with a professional. 
we've all been through some trauma. And if you've been incarcerated, you have trauma stacked on whatever trauma you brought in there with, with you and probably didn't deal with the trauma you brought in. I did. I did 27 years. I did a lot of that time in a cell by myself. And I didn't like my bunkie when I had a cell to myself. So I had to do some work. I had to figure out who I was. I had to be comfortable with myself. A lot of guys in there don't know how, they don't know how to do the time in the hole because they can't stand being by themselves. Out here, you need to find a way to kind of get you know in touch with yourself. We had this conversation this morning on our Facebook Live, and part of it is the saying is wherever you go, there you are. That's absolutely true. So if you do the work on yourself, no matter what happens in your environment, you still have a measure of calm and peace with yourself. That's why internal work is so important because you can't do a lot to affect your environment, but you can do a lot to affect your internal environment. I love the fact that you can talk to your friends as well, but also they don't, they might not have the resources that you may need. That's why I'm just a strong proponent of going to a therapist. There are some sliding scales as well, but they have more resources for you. And if one thing doesn't work, they can offer you another. And hopefully you do have friends that you can talk to as well. Yeah, and some of the resources that they have, that there's more research around PICS, which is post-incarceration syndrome. It's not just PTSD, it's specific to prison. Those things are kind of important because you don't just want to just get lumped into one category. There's a lot of people that that's their specific specialty. Yeah, their specialty. Allison was in here on the show and that's one of the things that she works on because she genuinely cares this isn't just something that she got into. This is something that she went to school for. She did something different because of how much she cares about people. And then what she did there led her back into the therapeutic side of things, but she still cares about people. She especially cares about those who have been incarcerated. She especially cares about the generational trauma that has taken place in these situations. And if she doesn't know something, she will find something out. And if she doesn't jive with you, she will find somebody who does. That's the whole thing about it. You can't rule something out in your life. Again, had a conversation this morning. When you draw lines that other people can't cross, you don't just, you don't keep yourself safer. You imprison yourself because now all these things aren't allowed to penetrate it. And I think that therapy and having somebody to help process stuff with erases some of those lines and frees you. There's a lot of people who have been incarcerated and who have been released who are no more free than they were when they were in prison. Well, and Allison talked about about her past and how the one thing that probably saved her was money. I mean, she was point blank about it. Yeah. She was a white woman and had money and she felt lucky and she understands that not everybody has that. And that was great. And Kat sharing her mental health struggles too was great. And Judy talking about her son. It was just amazing share that they did that I'm really grateful for that one. I was too. It's nice to get all those different perspectives and you sharing your own story and allowing yourself to be vulnerable. That was scary. Yes. And people don't understand this, that sometimes the only way that you can grow is to be vulnerable. You have to allow yourself to be exposed to be exposed to the things that feed you as well. If you're always tensed up, I think it was Bruce Lee that talked about the power of his one inch punch. And if I remember right, what he basically said was, the power comes from the fact that he does not flex until the last minute 
So if you run around with a clenched fist all the time, you fatigue and you lose strength in that. If you wait till the last minute, you have all your strength in that last part of it. Taking care of your mental health is about not running around flexed and fatigued all the time. So that when you have to do something and you have to make a decision, you're operating optimally. It's a tune-up. It's a tune-up. I like tune-ups. I much prefer tune-ups to the alternative of yes. actually having to fix a problem. So, Or to have the mental breakdown. Yes. And that's what we do not want to happen. Mm. I have experienced a breakdown. I've experienced homelessness partly because of the breakdown, but you don't want to get to that point. So ask for help. Yeah. No shame. No shame. Give a call to say, you know, I think I need to talk to someone. It's been really difficult for me. And sometimes that's that's all we can do in a brighter way. Sometimes we can't always address the things, but we can work with you. We can sit there and care. We can share a cup of coffee. Sometimes you just need somebody to bitch to. Get it off your chest. And it doesn't necessarily do any good to do it at DHS or the Secretary of State. <laughs> you know, I understand sometimes they might deserve it, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's good to just kind of, it, it's a pressure release. That's one of the things that going to therapy is too, that people don't understand. It's not about fixing you. It's about having you running optimally. And sometimes that's just releasing some pressure so that you don't snap. It's hard to be human. It is. Human beings, my wife and I talk about this on a pretty regular basis. Human beings are the most amazing creatures and the most disgusting. And destructive. Yes. And those things can operate in the same space and they can actually operate within the same human being. That's the part that really makes people uncomfortable because they want to know, they want things to fit into their nice little categories. And that's why they've picked names like offender and felon and murderer and sex offender and all these things because they want them to fit in a nice little category in the pay no mind list. I don't have to worry about them. But the fact is, again, when you start looking at 2 million out of 9 pe million people in the state. Do you know how many people are released in the United States? I think that's where that 700,000 came from. You think that's true? I thought that was worldwide. No. Well, we have 25% of the world's incarcerated population in this in this country. So 700,000 sounds like that would be the, the United States. I think it's somewhere around 10 or 12,000, or at least it was a few years ago here in the, in the state of Michigan. So 700,000 makes sense with the other 50, especially when you've got states like California and Texas. And, so every year, 10 to 12,000 are being released in Michigan. Yes. Is it usually noon that they get out? No, you usually get out. I think if I remember right, they start the releases approximately eight o'clock in the morning. And depending on whether or not you've got a ride or if you're getting a, the van trip or something like that depends. My wife was there first thing. I was the first one out the door. I was ready to go. I told y'all, y'all heard during her episode, she had to pee almost immediately after I came out the door. So I'm let there holding stuff and crying in front of a room full of strangers. And he lectures them. And I, no, I didn't lecture them. I did really, I did really remind them of how important a day this was and to remind their, their their family member about that but yeah I'm pretty sure it was first thing first thing in the morning there was another interesting and apropos thing I don't remember if it was the day that I got out or if it was a day that I was going to a healthcare run one day but you come out to the same parking lot either way 
and I saw a pair of state shoes sitting in an empty parking space one day. And that to me was hugely significant. And it was also again about relationship. I know what that was. It wasn't just about his feet. It was about leaving that behind, but they were still there which was pretty powerful. And I came into a brighter way not too long ago. I mean, a guy who had maxed out. And so he came home in the khakis and the state shoes and came in on a Saturday because I was doing something else and his state shoes were sitting in the trash. And you never forget, you know, you never forget some things like that. You can walk around a lot of times and think that it really doesn't bother you. And then all of a sudden something does and it hits you. You know, you have these surreal moments you know, out of nowhere. And so that's why I think the mental health component is so important too, is to be in right relationship with yourself so that when you have those moments, they're not debilitating. Sometimes they're extremely empowering. They're also funny. You have some things that are funny, but I won't get into that. We don't have enough time. We don't. And that's all I have for this season. What do you have? I'm just grateful for everybody who's willing to share their stories in these situations. We talk about how many people are involved in this who have been convicted, who have been incarcerated. You start talking about the next layer out is the loved ones. There aren't very many people who haven't been impacted by incarceration in some way, shape or form. We owe a debt of gratitude to people who are willing to share their stories because they're traumatic and they allow themselves to be vulnerable and they allow themselves to be vulnerable, not because they're all comfortable with it. I promise you, Katie was not comfortable with the idea of coming in and having this broadcast, but she genuinely cares about people and she wants to help. And so she's willing to be vulnerable to help other people. And I know that you've done this for the same reason to help humanize a whole segment of the population that has been dehumanized and you have allowed yourself to be vulnerable. Claudia, it's not the easiest thing to come in here and talk about how much it hurt to have your son go to prison and for the crimes we commit. It's not just going to prison, it's the crimes that we commit. Bank robberies, attempted murders, you know, these, these are not things that people hold up in high regard. The family members either, they get judged by it too. I think it sometimes gets lost in the wash that everybody who's speaking into these spaces allows themselves to be vulnerable so that other people don't have to and they're represented because some people, the trauma is still too much and they don't wanna talk about this. Many people walk out those prison gates and just like those state shoes, they try and leave it all behind and they act like it never happened and they carry that inside of it and it festers. And then somebody else speaks to something like this so they get an opportunity so they don't have to hide. There's a lot of success stories out here and it was predicated a lot of times by friends family, professionals that were willing to help and the people who were willing to do the work. So I'm appreciative of all of you. Season two was a tough one, I think. Totally different feel than season one. It was more, I felt like we really wanted to help and bring those stories. Like the wraparound service that you hate so much <laughs> is completely wraparound, like your employer, your friends, your family, your mental health. Yeah, and I think it was a little bit difficult, too, because season one was about coming home, which even though it has some difficult moments of the leading to going home, it still culminated in a person being home 
but this was this was more about the journey this was more about the heart again i appreciate it we don't know exactly what three season three will look like this time but i'm sure it will be informative and everybody will love it i will love it i know that and if you have suggestions on season three you can email volunteering at a brighter org. or if you have questions or comments let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you feel. Yes, and I would say this, that we want to cover people's experiences, but we also want to be solution-oriented. We don't want to spend a lot of time speaking to the problems. We want to speak to the solutions. We can speak to the problems to the point where we agree. Once we agree what the problem is, then we should all pivot to what the solutions are. So I thank you for listening. Have a nice day. Evening. <laughs> well, I don't know when you're going to listen Weekend. to this. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations About a Brighter Way, Reentry Through Relationship, and spending some time getting to know a little bit about other humans. We'd like to thank some people that helped to make Conversations About a Brighter Way possible. We'd like to thank our volunteer podcast editor, Patrick Domingo. You heard him in season one as well. Patrick is a multidisciplined artist based in Arizona. For contact information and to view their work, visit their website, patrickdomingojr.com. The beautiful music you hear in the intro and thank yous was written and performed by Chelsea-based singer-songwriter Annie Caps. If you're looking for a rootsy vibe, a touch of twang, and a soulful groove, look no further. You can find her at anniecaps.com. We'd like to thank Grove Studios for the discount for our podcast, our individual donors, United Way of Washtenaw County, the Ann Arbor Thrift, Nation Outside, Ann Arbor Area Community Foundation, our volunteers, mentors, and mentees. The contact information for A Brighter Way is info at abrighterway.org and 734-896-3770. Owen Waite. Subscribe and follow us on social media so you don't miss out on a single episode. And visit the website, abrighterway.org, for donation opportunities. And if you want to reach out to ask questions or send comments, you can email volunteering at abrighterway.org. This is Robin. And this is Adam. Peace out. Peace <laughs> out.